Good morning, everyone. We're continuing our journey through Acts this morning, and we're going to continue looking at Acts chapter 2. We did the first part of it. John talked us through the first part of it, verses 1 to 13 last week, uh, where you remember there was the coming of the day of Pentecost, and all the Holy Spirit poured down the people, and they started speaking out in different languages, um, and people thought, well, what's going on here? They must have just had a little bit too much to drink to try and rationalize it all. And John talked about the fact that how that was a real demonstration of, of the grace of God and the reminder of the reality that as believers, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us and changes us and makes us new. And we're going to continue along a similar theme this morning uh, as we look at what Peter then did when he stood up and he addressed the crowd. And we've got a bit of extra time this morning. So what I might do is, uh, because this passage is ultimately an address to the crowd, it's a, it's a kind of like an early sermon, if you like, to uh, the people who are just learning about Jesus for the first time, I might actually just read it. And I'll just read it as an address. And you can pretend you're the, the people of Israel uh, who are listening. And I'll do my best to put on my best Peter accent for you. And we'll see how far we get. So we're going to read verse 14 to 41. I'm reading it in the NIV version because that's what I've been familiar with. But I, don't, I actually think between the versions it doesn't vary too much. So it won't matter so much what you're on. But if you want it word for word on your phone or whatever, then the NIV is the one I'll be looking at. All right, here we go. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what, the spoken, what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to the darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your holy ones see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. 
exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Now those who accepted his message were baptized and 3,000 were added to their number that day. Let's just pray as we start to unpack that together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reality of the resurrection. We thank you for the power of the resurrection. We thank you for the power of your salvation. And we thank you for the truth that that salvation is offered to each of us. Lord, may we uh, be open to what Peter says to the crowd here, what you have said to us through your word, that we might listen to it, take heed of it, and be changed by it. In Jesus' name, we all said, Amen. Thank you. Now, one thing I'm starting to learn about myself, and one thing I think I learned, I'm being reminded about myself more as I've gone through Acts chapter 2, and even as I read it again then, is I'm often a lot quicker to dismiss what I hear rather than listening to it and taking it in. I'll give you an example. Melody has been making a few um, subtle remarks to me recently that I should consider some exercise because apparently I'm getting to the stage in life where I'm no longer at my prime. Now, I don't agree with that for a second, despite Nathan's heated agreement just in a couple of rows up there. Um, But I would hear what Melody was saying to me Uh, but I would be very quick to rationalise it, to brush it aside, to not really pay attention to it, thinking I'm always as fit as nimble as I ever was. Um, My my physical physique hasn't hasn't, gone backwards in any way, shape or form. If anything, it's exceeded expectations. (laughs) Now, the added benefit, if I simply dismiss what she's saying to me, is that I don't have to acknowledge any form of physical decline in myself. I don't have to submit myself to a potentially painful fitness regime, and I can continue to enjoy that fraction of sleep you can get between 6 and 7 a.m. in the morning. These are all the benefits I get if I dismiss what she's saying, so I'm naturally quite quick to do that. The problem is one day I tried to go for a swim. Almost drowned before I got to the 50-metre mark, and that was wearing a pair of flippers. (laughs) Now, even if what we're hearing is truth, if it challenges us, or requires us to take some action or to acknowledge that we're less than perfect human beings, we are very, our preference by far is to dismiss what we're hearing and brush it aside, say it's off the mark, it's misguided, it's irrelevant, I don't need to pay attention to that. And this is largely where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 2. They're seeing some very strange events. Jesus was born of a virgin, he lived around them like a person, like all of us, but then he was crucified on the cross and yet he was resurrected from the dead. And his disciples then see him after he's died, dwelling in doing things amongst him. And then we read in Acts, he ascends up to heaven. And then 
the Holy Spirit comes down and people start instantly breaking out in different languages. Uneducated, fairly unsophisticated people, all of a sudden literate in a number of different languages, speaking the truth of the gospel to people so they can, as John spoke about last week, move back to their hometowns with the reality of a risen Jesus Christ. These are very strange events. And the people who are hearing these truths for the first time, it's a lot easier to, dis- to dismiss them. It's a lot easier to not deal with that and just to brush it aside and say, look, that's off the mark. These guys are just crazy. They've had too much to drink. It's a moment of insanity from them. Just don't worry about it. Because the last thing they want to do is have their understanding of God challenged. The last thing they want to have to do is to deal with this person, Jesus, again, which they thought was dealt with on the cross. He was out of the picture. They don't want him brought back into the picture. It's a lot easier just to dismiss it and brush it aside. But what Peter does through his address is he's saying to them, this is not something you want to dismiss. This is something you need to listen to. This is something we all need to understand and take in and be changed by it. These are the events that matter. These, events, these are events we need to take heed of. And these are events by which, which were predicted by the Old Testament scriptures and which God has used to completely redefine his relationship with mankind forever. So let's not fall into the same trap this morning uh, of dismissing what we've just heard, but let's listen to it, let's try to understand it, and let's take it in so we can be changed by it. You know, what I love about the way Peter starts his address is that he doesn't launch into some apologetics argument, which he could have done. He doesn't start saying, all these people are speaking in different languages, how could they do that but through God? You know, he could have made that argument, but he doesn't go there. He could have said, how can someone rise from the dead? And we've got all these evidences of the fact that he's risen from the dead. This is the truth of the resurrection, therefore you should believe. He doesn't, he doesn't go there either. That's not, where, that's not where Peter starts. Instead, Peter starts with the Old Testament scriptures. He starts by quoting a prophet, Joel, who many of the listeners around him would have been familiar with, would have been well respected by. He goes to their own text. And you can see in that text, as it talks about the start of chapter 2, it talks about the Holy Spirit being poured out on his people. Sounds pretty familiar to the scene they've just observed, isn't it? Where that's happened and they've all started breaking out different languages. The Holy Spirit pouring out on his people and then everyone starts prophesying. In other words, speaking God's truth. That's exactly what they start to do. And he, he draws attention to this. And then he says there's signs and wonders it talks about in the prophet Joel. And that's what we see in the life of Peter and Paul, isn't it? They go off, they heal sick, they overcome evil spirits. All people from different languages start speaking in tongues as they receive the Holy Spirit and they are saved as they believe in Jesus Christ. These are the signs of wonders of the great and glorious day that it talks about in the, through the prophet Joel. Peter goes back to the Old Testament to say, these are not things that you should dismiss. These are not things that have come out of left field. They are a surprise to us, but that's because we weren't reading the scriptures the way we should have been. This is because our eyes have now been opened to what those scriptures were actually saying. This is the great and glorious day where the Holy Spirit is being poured out on his people. We need to listen to this, take heed of it, and be changed by it. This is a moment in time that was predicted by our Old Testament scriptures hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Don't dismiss this. This is exactly what the scripture said would happen. We just didn't see it coming. 
And the punchline from this passage, I think, is found in that last verse, a beautiful verse where it's in verse 21 of of his quote from Joel. And it says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the reason God was pouring out his Holy Spirit on the people. This is the reason he was sending then those people out to Jerusalem, to Judah, Samaria, the ends of the earth, so that people would believe in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, so that he could then change their hearts, he could make them new, and everyone who therefore called on his name could be saved forever. The door to God's incredible salvation had just been flung open. Amen? The door to salvation has been opened. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This was the beginning of something incredible. Now, the sad reality is that there's so many people who don't know that truth. There's so many people who are looking for salvation in a lot of different places. Now, we can look for salvation in our career. We can look for salvation in our moral uprightness. We can look for salvation in our own success in life and how we raise our family. We can look for salvation in other religions, in sporting clubs and in our personal achievements. We can look for salvation in all sorts of areas, but the truth is those, those things will never be able to bring the sort of salvation which is being talked about here through Peter and with all the way through scriptures, which is a salvation of our heart and a soul and a salvation that involves a change in our eternity forever. Now, no matter what other things we try to explore here on this earth, we will not find salvation of that nature anywhere else. We will only find salvation of that sort when we call upon the name of the Lord. And the beautiful thing it says in that verse is that everyone who does that can be saved. Salvation's for everyone. And you see that in this quote from Joel, because it talks about the young and the old. It talks about the men and the women. It talks about the slave and the free. They're all involved in what's going on. In other words, whatever race or gender or background you might have, no matter how far short of God's standard you might feel as though you've fallen, whether it's this week or whether it's all the way through your life, no matter what worries or anxieties might be holding you down in life, the gospel is still for you. There is salvation to still be found in Jesus Christ when we call upon his name. All who call upon the Lord will be saved. Amen? I'm going to ask that question a lot because there's a lot in this passage to celebrate. And I think we need to celebrate and be reminded of this truth together. That everyone who calls upon his name can experience a salvation that's been made possible through the resurrected Jesus Christ. And that's exactly where Peter turns to next. So he said, the door to salvation has been flung open. Celebrate with us. But then he he explains how. He explains how that's been flung open. And we see this in verse 22 to 23. It says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Having boldly declared this door of salvation has been opened, he talks about the person who made that possible, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. 
He was accredited to them by God. In other words, he was shown to be exactly who he was by what God did through him, through these signs and wonders that they observed, which could only be explained if God was at work. But despite demonstrating that he was from God and of God, people didn't acknowledge that in the way they responded to him. Instead, they, he was handed over according with what God knew would happen. He was handed over and he was nailed to a cross and killed. But it was ultimately our sin that nailed him to that cross, wasn't it? Church, is there any more graphic illustration of that sin than when you put yourself in that moment? And you can imagine this, this mob of people dragging Jesus away under the cover of darkness, subjecting him to this artificially constructed trial to try and establish some form of guilt, to then lobby the authorities of the day so that they would bring about his downfall, so that they would bring about the crucifixion, and then standing by and watching as an innocent man is beaten and abused and ultimately crucified as an enemy of the state for nothing that he did wrong himself. All that was because they refused to acknowledge his position as a son of God and therefore the authority that was rightfully his. Now... Before we start shaking our heads and pointing at those people back then, we need to examine our own hearts, don't we? Because realistically, we don't need to look at ourselves for very long before we find that same rejection of Jesus' position and authority in our own lives. You know, we, we constantly hear the truth that Jesus is Lord, but we reject that truth by insisting on being the masters of our own destiny, don't we? You know, we, we hear his word, but we are constantly covering our ears in case it asks us to go places we would rather not go, or do things we would rather not do, or say things that we would rather not say. We read that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but we're constantly acting as though there's some alternative way to the pathway than the way that he set out in the scriptures. This inner sinful Heart And this rejection of Jesus' position and authority over our lives has been present all the way since creation, where God made the beautiful world. He made creation perfect. And he put man in it and said, you can enjoy all of this, but just don't, don't eat the fruit from that tree. So what do we do? We ate the fruit from that tree. Because we refuse to submit ourselves to God's authority and position over our lives as ruler and master, to use the language Andy was using in communion. Church, sin is ultimately that rejection of Jesus' position and authority over us. We've always done it. We continue to do it. We will keep on doing it as we try to make ourselves the master of our own destiny. And it's that sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was physically carried out by the wicked people of the day, which Peter refers to in chapter 2. But that was just an expression of the inherent sinfulness that's in each and every one of our hearts. Now, I know that can be a little bit difficult to digest because... It makes us a little bit uncomfortable to reflect on the, our own inner sinfulness, our own inner wickedness and lawlessness that exists inside our hearts. But it's important that we do so because it's only through a recognition of our own hopeless state 
that we start to get an appreciation of his grace. It's only through understanding the depths of our sin that we start to realize our need and dependence on a saviour. And that is the reason Peter's drawing their attention to this sin that was so made so plainly obvious through the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. He does it so that he could then use it as a platform to redirect them to the salvation that's been made possible by what Jesus then did after that fact. And we see that as we read verses 24 through to 36. And I know I've read it once. But with the context of where we've come from, I'd like to read it one more time. Because this is a really important part of the text that highlights to us the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's pick it up from verse 24. Verse 23 talks about how they put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Verse 24 says, But God raised him from the dead. Didn't he? He did. God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Then he points back to the patriot, to the to great King David, another one of their Old Testament figures that was so well and respected amongst his listeners. He points back to that person and says, this one, that guy saw it coming too. And he quotes then from a psalm, which was Psalm 16. It says, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. It's in verse 20, I will not be shaken. Verse 26, therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence. Then Peter keeps going, verse 29, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. As great as the King David was, in other words, he was mortal and he died a death and he's in a grave just like the rest of us will be at, the, at God's appointed time. But it says in verse 30, he was a prophet and he knew God had promised him an oath that would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are exalted and witnesses of this, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received, Father, the promised Holy Spirit, poured out what you now see and hear. And then he quotes another psalm. For David said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Amen. Thank you. An unprompted amen. Thank you. Now that is a great section of chapter 2, but you've got to process it. And I think the best way of processing it is doing what I call bookending it. You're taking the first verse and the last verse and you read them together. And when you do that, you hear him saying, God raised him from the dead. Freeing him from the agony of sin, because it was impossible to death to keep its hold on him. Then in verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's bookending it, okay? They're the two key verses. When you run them together, you can see him saying, Jesus was killed on the cross because of our sin, but God has raised him up. But not only that, because he's raised him up from the dead, death could never have its hold on him. 
So he's been exalted to God's right hand and he reigns there as both Christ and Lord. What does that mean? He is both our saviour king and our ruler Lord. He is both the gateway to our eternity and he is the ultimate authority by which we live today. He is both, he is both our saving Christ and our ruler Lord. And now we have that broader picture, you start to understand that all the verses in the middle are essentially an explanation of that truth. And he does it by relying on the great King David, another well-respected Old Testament figure. And he said David had foreshadowed this. He was a great king, but he was also a prophet in the sense that his Psalms suggest that this moment would come. As great as David was. He died like the rest of us, but he knew that God would not abandon him in that death. There was a holy one who would come. Jesus Christ. And he would die as well, but his body would never see decay because God would raise him up again. But not only that, he then uses the other psalm to predict that, that to draw reference to the fact that this holy one would be exalted to the right hand of God. Says the, the Lord God says to my Lord Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus had been risen up. He'd been placed at God's right hand forever. And because of that position, he is both the one through whom we are saved. For his blood was shed. And it's only through that blood we have forgiveness. It's only through him that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone who believes in him shall have eternal life, shall not perish. But he's not just our saviour, he's also our Lord. He's our ruling authority, the means by which we should live. Our David, death could never hold him down. And now God has made him both Christ and Lord. Jesus is the great and perfect and eternal king that David could never be. As great as David was, he could never be the sort of king that the Holy One would ultimately be. The one whose blood was shed as a once and for all act of forgiveness through whom our faith, through whom believing in him can offer that salvation which has been made possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That all who call upon his glorious name would be saved. Just like he was brought back to life and conquered sin and death in the same way he offers to resurrect our dead hearts by breaking the power of sin and restoring our relationship with God through the gift of his Holy Spirit, which was poured out on the apostles in this very same chapter. Church, in what ways do we need Jesus to bring about a resurrection in our hearts? You know, what sin might be holding us down in which we know we need Jesus to break us free? We need the power of his Holy Spirit to resurrect that heart through the forgiveness of that sin. What aspects of our walk with God feel flat or stale or even non-existent? We've all been through those times where you just feel really distant from God. But through his Holy Spirit, he can resurrect that situation and breathe in new life. What circumstances might be weighing us down or overwhelming us or getting the better of us for which we know we need God and his resurrection power to break us free and give us new life in the midst of those difficulties? 
It doesn't mean they get any easier, but it means we can find new life and peace in the midst of them through what God can do to our hearts. For the truth we're reminded of here in Acts 2 is that just like it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus, so it's impossible for the burdens and the sin of this world to weigh us down when we place our faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus. For God, through his power, has raised him back to life. And he now reigns as both Christ and Lord. And through his power, that same resurrection can occur in our otherwise sinful and lost and hopeless hearts. That he might breathe new life. That he might breathe breathe forgiveness and peace into our situation, whatever that might look like. Now, having been through all that, the question then becomes, well, how are we going to respond? What are we going to do with that truth? How, what do we do with this gospel? And as Peter finishes his address to the crowd, the question facing each and every one of them is, now what are you going to do? There's, I've told you that the salvation of the door has been flung open. I've told you that it was through Jesus, whom you nailed to the cross, but who God has raised back to life as both Christ and Lord. Now it's over, the, over to the crowd to say, what are you going to make of that? So let's read these last few verses again. Verse 37. It says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. I love that term. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What can we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I love the language in verse 37, where it says that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That descriptive, it has a connotation of being stricken with grief and anguish and sorrow. These people were were deeply moved in their heart about what had occurred and been inflicted on Jesus on the cross. That he was an innocent man who was killed for a guilty people. They were cut to the heart about the reality of his sacrifice and it moved them in a way that demanded a response. And doesn't God want us to be in that place? Where we feel deeply moved and convicted by what Jesus was willing to endure on the cross. That we might be deeply moved and convicted by his steadfast love for each of us that sacrificial love that allowed his body to be broken and blood shed so that we could enjoy salvation as a free gift. May we every day be cut to the heart by the reality of that truth. You see, conviction of the heart is a very powerful thing. It's a very powerful thing. I remember one day I came home from work and... um, Melody came in and she said, it was quite unusual, because she said, oh, there's a video that I want you to watch. I'm like, it's a bit odd. Never been asked to watch a video before, but we'll do it. Um, It was this YouTube clip. But it was actually the story of the thank you movement. And where they were going to is the next chapter. 
Now, for those who aren't familiar, the Thank You Movement is a group of people who were, who were convicted and, and felt a need to help do what they can within their power to help people in need in developing countries. So they started up a line of products which would, through the sales, they would receive pro- profit that would then be poured into people in need in developing countries. And this video told, told a little bit of their story. You might have seen some of their products. It started with Thank You Water. And there was a big campaign to get that into um, corner stores and grocery stores and the like. Then they moved into other food products. And this was uh, the video about what they called the next chapter, where they launched a book about chapter one, and they explained that now they were going to move into different products, uh, baby products, and potentially launch into international markets. And they were doing this so that, again, they would keep the model the same, where 100% of the profit they would go would be funneled through into people in need in developing countries. And it's quite inspirational because this is, uh, it started with a core group of people who actually had background in Donvale Christian College who had a passion to share God's love and do what they could do to make a difference. They had a conviction. And I think what moved me about that video is that it didn't stop at a conviction. That conviction was powerful because it moved them to then do something about it and to try and make a difference. And that's where conviction is powerful. See, we can be convicted about things and not act on it and ignore it. And then it loses its power. But when we are cut to the heart and we feel a conviction of the Holy Spirit and we're then motivated to go and do something about it, when that conviction compels us to action, it's an extremely powerful thing. Now these hearers here says they were cut to the heart. They felt a conviction in their heart about Jesus and about the truth of his salvation. And the power that exists in that is when we allow that conviction to move us to action. And so they turn to Peter and they say, what do we do? They wanted to act on it. They wanted to respond. So Peter says, repent and be baptized. Now, repentance is essentially talking about turning back to God. It's a change of direction. It's moving our priorities from ourself back onto God. And baptism represented an act of obedience whereby we identified with a crucifixion of the cross, going under the waters, and then coming up again to identify with his resurrection. In other words, we are making a public statement there that we believe in what Jesus achieved on the cross and we are going to follow him. Now you put those two things together and you see a heart change, don't you? You see a people who are now wanting to change direction. They're wanting to change their view on who Jesus was and what he did. They want him to be in a position of authority over their life. They want to identify themselves with Jesus and they then want to move out and follow him with everything that they have and all that they are. This is a heart change in these people. Peter says, you want to respond to this conviction? then you throw yourselves over to him. Turn around and submit yourselves to him as both Christ and Lord. They turn back to God. They now desire to place him in their highest priority. He was the central figure in their life and he was given his rightful place as both Christ, Saviour and Lord. And it says 3,000 people were added to their number that day. You know, if you go back into the, go back in the Greek, that's more of a connotation of 3,000 souls were added that day. In other words, 3,000 hearts were changed. 3,000 people moved from death to life. They moved from darkness to light. They moved from slave to free. 
3,000 people's eternities were changed because they felt a conviction in the heart and they then responded in faith, saying, Yes, Lord, you are both my Saviour Christ through what you achieved on the cross and you are my ruler, Lord, the authority by which I will live the rest of my days. Church, this is the power of the resurrection, isn't it? This is the power of God's salvation, that Jesus lives, that through the power of his resurrection, we too can live in a new way, that we have been made new by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that when we fall on our knees and we say to our Lord Jesus that you are our Christ and Lord, his Holy Spirit makes us new and it sets us free and it breathes new life in our situation, whatever that situation might look like for you or me. That is responding in faith. And it's through faith that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's faith. In what ways might you need to respond to the resurrection this morning, acknowledging Jesus as your Lord and Christ? How might you need to start trusting him again? How might... How might you need to depend on his resurrection power in the midst of your struggles? How might you need to submit to his sovereign authority over your life and put him back in his rightful position? For he and only he is risen from the dead. He and only he has opened the doorway to salvation. And he and only he has therefore offered that salvation to us as a free gift by his grace. But what he calls for us in response is faith. Faith that he is Christ and Lord. Faith that he is exactly who the Old Testament scriptures said he would be. Faith that he is exactly who he said he would be. Faith that he is both our saviour God and our ruling Lord. Let's not dismiss Jesus' relevance anymore. Let's not dismiss the reality of the resurrection and the power of his salvation anymore. Let's not brush it aside as unimportant or irrelevant in my day-to-day walk. But let's embrace it. Let's take it in. Let's heed it. And let's allow the Holy Spirit to change us. Let's embrace him as our Saviour Lord so that that same resurrection which conquered sin and death on the cross can resurrect our hearts and breathe new life into us. A life that can only be found in God. That is the power of God's salvation. And now it's over to us to respond. Let's just bow our heads in a word of prayer as we work through that together. Dear Lord, we thank you for the reality of your salvation. We thank you that through Jesus Christ you didn't leave him on the cross that our sin, although it may have nailed him to the cross, it never had the power to hold him there. We thank you that you raised him back and you elevated him to your right hand where he rules as Saviour and Lord and that through faith in him we can experience that same resurrection power in our own life. Lord, we thank you that through his death and resurrection, a door to salvation has been flung open through Jesus and that each of us has the opportunity to respond through faith, that we might fall on our knees and, and, 
and submit ourselves to you as both Lord and Christ. Lord, we pray this as a church, and each of us said from the heart, Amen.